Well, last week, if you'll recall, in our Ephesians passage, we began talking about the last of the offices which Christ has given to the church so that the church might be built up and the saints might be equipped. If you're not there already, you can go ahead and turn there to Ephesians chapter 4. And of course, we're in verse 11. You can put a finger there because we're going to skip around a little bit this morning and look at a few other passages. Of course, when we're talking about this office, we're talking about the office of pastor-teacher. If you'll recall, the text says that he gave some as pastors and teachers at the end of verse 11. And we talked about the fact that really, in the original language, that is sort of a hyphenated word. It's not pastors and teachers. It's the same office, the same person. It's better understood as the pastor-teacher. We spent a quite, quite a bit of deal of time last week really talking about that and defining it, so you can go back and listen to that if you need to. But it's one person, it's one office, and really, teacher here is a description of the primary function of the pastor. When we look at three words used interchangeably throughout Scripture last week to describe the pastor, we spoke about how it is important to understand something of all of the words that Scripture uses for the office of pastor-teacher. There are three primary words that we see in Scripture, all describing the exactly same, the exact same man, the same office. There's the word pastor, which shows up in our text. It's the Greek word poimen. It means shepherd. So pastor, shepherd, it's the same thing. This particular word speaks to the attitude and the heart of the pastor-teacher for the flock of God. It's the picture of a shepherd. The pastor is to have a shepherd's heart for the flock of God. The next word we see in Scripture is episkopos. We talked about these last week. It means overseer or bishop. This is the word, like I just said, that we get bishop from. Overseer, bishop, pastor, shepherd, all the same person. This word in the text really speaks to the role of the pastor as an overseer or as a guardian of the flock of God. And the overseer does just that. He oversees and rules righteously over God's people. The third word that we looked at last week was the word we get elder from, presbuteros. It speaks of the man who is a spiritually mature man, as you might imagine, as a leader, fearing God, making righteous judgments for the sake of godliness in the body of Christ. So overseer, pastor, elder in the text, they all refer to the exact same office. They're not different functions. They're not different people. They're not different offices. It's the same man. When we look at all three of these words, what we come to discover is a more holistic picture of what a pastor ought to be, and, or rather what God expects the pastor to be. The pastor's entire life is a life in service to Christ and then to Christ's people, looking after the flock of God. It's a call to a life of sacrifice, even of suffering and of surrender. This morning, we're going to continue discussing this office of pastor-teacher. And now that we've looked at some of the terms used to describe the pastor, we want to move on in the text and look at the qualifications that are demanded of the pastor-teacher. Now, if you'll recall, last week I made a very strong statement 
the statement that I made was something to the effect of understanding the biblical role of a pastor is vital to you as a believer, as a Christian. It isn't something that just pastors or those who are wanting to get in the ministry need to know or should understand. Because you are the ones who are to sit under the leadership of a church. You're the ones who are to submit the care of your souls to a pastor. And so it's vitally important that the body of Christ understand what God expects from the man in the pulpit. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. This is a command from the Lord to believers. And so God expects that his people submit in the right way to the elders of a church. And so if you're going to submit yourself to the leadership of a church, you best know what kind of man you're supposed to obey and submit to. Lest anyone take what I'm saying the wrong way, I want to be very clear when we say that we submit to the leaders, we need to understand that the authority of the pastor only comes from God's word. In other words, the pastor has no authority over those things to which the Bible doesn't speak, okay? I can't tell you what job you have to get or who you should marry or what you should wear, at least not directly. But it is my job to point you to Scripture. It is the pastor's role to point you to Scripture. So, for instance, while I can't tell you who you have to marry or who you should marry, I can tell you that from the word of God as a Christian, you may not marry an unbeliever. You see that? I have the authority to say that. The pastor has the mandate to say that because the word of God says that. By the way, this is a very good reason for the man in the office of pastor teacher to have the character God says he must have. Otherwise, he'll be tempted to rule God's people rather than to shepherd God's people. We all know of churches and even some denominations like that. Well, it doesn't take much time to look around the church scene today and discover that there are plenty of men in the pulpit who do not belong there, who lack the necessary qualifications of character, we constantly hear of men who fall from the ministry because of some impropriety, be it an affair or uncontrollable outbursts of anger, a controlling spirit, or mishandling of funds. It seems like the last several years, every couple months, we hear of some new pastor who has made headlines and unqualified himself. And in all likelihood, most of these men were never qualified to begin with. In fact, just this week, I read a police report of a pastor with a fairly large platform. The charges were embezzlement, assault with a weapon, and strangulation of a family member. And on top of that, drug addiction to prescription medications. Now, this man's church did the right thing. They removed him from ministry, and in reality, he'll never be able to pastor again. One of the qualifications that we'll come to here over the next few weeks is being above reproach. Well, he can no longer 
ever be above reproach. He may be restored to the fellowship and the life of the church if he's repentant, but one thing he can never again do is assume the office of pastor according to God's word. Now, it seems that there were enough elders in that particular church that the reflection of the leadership is seen in their willingness to remove the man. That is not always the case. We hear of men accused of this thing or that thing, and they continue on in ministry for a good long time. But they seem to have good leadership at this church, and so they did the right thing. And I, I only say that because we need to realize that the church is most often a reflection of its leadership. If the leadership is weak, the church is weak. If the leadership is morally bankrupt, then you'll find all sorts of scandals and excuses for sin in the church. If the leaders are spiritually immature, then the congregation will be also. A congregation is never going to rise above the level of its leadership. In fact, we see this very same principle in the book of Hosea 4, 9. It says, and it will be like people like priests. We understand that. And so God has left nothing to the imagination when it comes to the qualification of the pastor-teacher. Not only do we have a detailed list, but we are given it more than once. The ministries, the impact, and the life of the church will largely be a reflection of the leadership of that church. And over the years, you'll see a church that looks much like its elders. If the leaders are worldly, the church will be given to worldliness. If the leaders are God-fearing, then that too will be generally seen in the church. So God calls the congregation to follow the faith of their leaders, to submit to them. And as we read and read in Hebrews earlier, and so the leaders are vital to the church. Sadly, I think the reason so many look with disdain on the church, even the reason so many professing believers find themselves discouraged in many churches is because the leaders in those churches lack the qualities that God demands they have. And I say demands because we have to remember to whom the church belongs. It's God's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's God's church. It's Christ's body. And God gets to say, how his church is to function. And God gets to say what qualities and characteristics the church's leaders must have. And when we forget that, we get all sorts of messed up things in the church. Well, I think it's easy for someone to say something like, well, you're kind of belaboring the point. We've been talking about this office of pastor-teacher. You spent a whole Sunday just looking at three words and now you're going to talk about the qualifications for how many ever weeks you're going to talk about them. Well, I'm not going to be in the ministry, pastor. I'm not called to be a pastor. And so why does this really matter? And I hope I've already answered that question for you. It matters deeply because your soul is at stake. Your soul is at stake And a little closer to home, it matters because every Christian is told by God to submit joyfully to their leaders as ones who care for their souls. And you also bring your family and you submit your family to a church's leaders. And so the church's reputation depends on it and your soul depends 
on it. So, with that little introduction, I want to dive into the specific qualifications of an elder this morning. Now, we're studying from the book of Ephesians, right? We're in Ephesians 4.11, but as we dive into the qualifications, I want to give you a little bit of history of the church concerning Ephesus. But before we do that, if you will, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can keep your hand in the Ephesians if you want. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me just read this to you, and then we'll give you a little bit of history. It says this, and this is, by the way, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be the one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Well, that's quite a list, isn't it? But this is God's standard. For the pastor teacher. This week I read a response from someone commenting on these very qualifications of an elder. I want to read his response to you. He said this and I quote, Sometimes there is just nobody available that seems like a good candidate. So it seems if you've got plenty of people to choose from, you can just try and get someone that would score higher on the scale. I'm not sure he's ever really read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And if he did, he certainly didn't understand it. But sadly, this is the very reason much of the church looks like a mess. Again, who does the church belong to? Does it belong to you? Does it belong to me? No. The church is God's church, and these are God's standards for the leaders in the church. God didn't say that these are the standards some of the time, depending on your circumstances. He didn't say, unless you just don't have enough people to choose from. The text does say, or rather, the text doesn't say, choose the man that scores the highest. Just get the best you've got. No, the text does say, an overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and so on, must. You know what the word must means? Must. Absolutely, unnegotiable. These are non-negotiable qualifications for anyone who would seek the office of pastor in the church. And by the way, this list, in case you're wondering, is not exclusively for leaders. What do I mean? Well, every Christian ought to exhibit these characteristics. This is just merely the description of a godly man. But the leaders in the church have to and must already possess these if 
the people are to look to him as an example of godliness and if he is to watch over the souls of God's people. Now, let's back up a little, and I want to give you a little background here to our passage. So Paul's writing to Timothy. Where is Timothy? Timothy is actually an elder in Ephesus, right? The very book we are studying from. He was installed by the Apostle Paul himself. And Paul has given this letter to Timothy because there are issues in the church. By the way, the Apostle Paul is the one who started this church in Ephesus some years before he wrote this letter to Timothy. He was there for three years, and it's very likely that Paul himself functioned as an elder in this church. And not only does he function as an elder, but Paul clearly trained up other leaders in the church. And so he turns the church over, calls Timothy to be an elder in this church. And it's been some years, and so now Paul is having to write this letter to Timothy because there are problems, and he's needing to set straight the issues and they're centered around the qualifications of an elder. False teaching has crept into the church at Ephesus. We see that false teachers and unqualified men had somehow made their way into leadership. And so Paul is addressing this before it gets any worse. And so this letter to Timothy is Paul instructing Timothy on how to deal with these problems. And the way Paul deals with this is by striking at the heart of the matter, which is the character and quality of the leadership. So in the beginning, Ephesus had great leadership, obviously. Paul was there, and he was training up these men like Timothy, and as a new church, they started off with quality leadership. And over time, which, by the way, tends to happen in new churches, over time, for whatever reason, perhaps they got lazy or desperate for leaders, whatever the case is, over time, somehow, unqualified men crept into leadership at the church of Ephesus and began to wreak havoc in the church. And this is the very thing that Paul attacks head on, the character of the man who was to be an elder. And this entire list, by the way, addresses the character of the man. You see, leadership in the church is not like leadership in the world. It's not predicated upon whether or not the man has exceptional marketing skills. Thank God. Or the ability to make people feel a certain way. We don't need manipulative people in the pulpit. It's not predicated upon whether he's able to effectively psychoanalyze people or is a secular counselor or that he's a great entrepreneur or CEO or even that he's an excellent orator. God demands that the leaders in the church, first and foremost, before anything else, have character. And God spells out exactly what that looks like here in this passage and then again in Titus. So many issues could be avoided in the church today if these simple qualifications were met by the man that is to be an elder in the church. Character is far more important than any natural gifting a man could ever have. Without character, those natural gifts will simply be a manipulative tool used for evil purposes. Well, this week I decided that I was going to do a quick Google search on recent pastor scandals in 2022. I was just curious how many and how regularly lately... Is it very clear that these qualifications seem to be ignored in the pulpit? 
Well, I was bombarded very quickly with a list of names that I couldn't even get through in a relatively short amount of time. The first one, all and mostly names that we would know, the first was fired for inappropriate relationships with two separate women. The second one was fired for an affair. The third had an affair. The fourth, sexual relations with a minor. The fifth, mishandling of money. The sixth, domineering of church employees and members. And the list went on and on and on. And so the issue of character is of utmost importance. And that is what Paul is focusing on here in 1 Timothy. It's very interesting that if you were to survey, at least in the Southern Baptist world, we're gonna, I'm going to pick on the Southern Baptists this morning, at least in the Southern Baptist world, if you were to go around and survey all of the pastor search committees, I would dare to say that the vast majority of them probably have no idea what the qualifications of a pastor should be. You know what they're going to ask for? They want to look for age. They want the man to be retired so he can relate to retired people. They want to know a litmus of things, including what Bible translation he may or may not use. But something you rarely ever hear in those circles is, is he qualified according to Scripture? So it's no wonder we have issues in the church today. In fact, it's just not nice to demand these things, they might even say. And yet, God does do that. Well, if you'll look down at that first verse in Timothy, the very first thing Paul says about the qualification, which we're going to focus on mostly this morning, has to do with the call to the ministry itself. And this might seem a bit odd that Paul would insert this here. But it really should be no surprise that people get into the ministry for all sorts of reasons. People become pastors for all sorts of reasons. And Paul really here makes the point that the hard motivation is vital. Does the man truly desire to shepherd God's people, to devote his life to their well-being, to spend countless hours preparing Sunday to Sunday? Does the man desire to weep over them in prayer? Does he desire to constantly guide them, help them, point them to Christ, and constantly watch over their souls lest they fall into the snare of the enemy under his watch? Or does he seek the role for other reasons? Does he desire the work of a pastor or merely some benefit that he believes he gets from it? It really matters. Paul says that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. The assumption is that the aspiring is to the true work of the office. You can always tell when a pastor's heart is not really in pastoring. He's lazy in his preparation. He spends as little time as possible for Sunday mornings. And then the rest of the time, he maybe is just doing casual meetings with people at coffee shops and then hurriedly he's off to do whatever extracurricular activity he enjoys doing. And maybe he stands in the pulpit and he makes a joke of things every Sunday morning. That's clearly not the kind of man that's described here. That's the kind of man that doesn't desire the work at all. Maybe he's just looking for a place where he can have a nice salary and hide away in a nice office. 
You don't see many of those guys planting churches, by the way. But perhaps he's looking for prestige of having a large platform. Or maybe he just thinks it's prestigious to be a pastor. Maybe he likes to be looked up to as a leader. Or whatever other misguided motivations one may have for entering the ministry, the Apostle Paul says that he has to have a desire for the work. Now, there are plenty of men who do not so much desire the office as they do whatever benefit they think they will derive from it. But there's another type of man, too, besides that, more so on the positive side. But they still seek the office for the wrong reason. Maybe you find a small church, a new plant, much like ours, perhaps. And someone comes in, and they simply want to help carry the burden that only a pastor really carries. That's a valiant concern. Maybe there's a great need in the church and he just wants to serve because he sees the need. Well, that's a noble gesture. But unfortunately, that man doesn't meet the qualifications because he doesn't have the desire for the office. A godly, as godly as that man may be, he should serve in the church, but he can't step into the role of an elder because he misses the very first qualification. In fact, I spoke with someone personally very recently, and he said this church was considering to be an elder. And so my very first question to him was, do you have the desire? And he spent about 20 minutes telling me how he didn't have the desire. He just thought it was a good thing to do. Then don't do it. You're not qualified. God hasn't given that internal call. And so what happens is well-meaning men like that get in with a desire to serve, and then they are crushed under the burden of pastoring because God never called them to bear the weight that every pastor bears. And ultimately, the church suffers. The internal call of God is extremely important. There has to be a deep desire in a man's heart to shepherd God's people, so much so that he simply couldn't see himself doing anything else in life and being content. Not that he can't do other things, but that God has placed such a desire that nothing else can do. Charles Spurgeon, in one of my favorite books entitled Lectures to My Students, says this concerning the aspiring to the office of overseer. He says this, and I quote, In order to be a true call to the ministry, there must be an irresistible, overwhelming craving that rages in thirst to tell others what God has done to our own souls. If any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor, a grocer, or a farmer, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or a senator, or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. He is not the man in whom dwells the Spirit of God in its fullness, for a man so filled with God would utterly weary of any pursuit but that which is in his utmost soul. If, on the other hand, you can say that for all the wealth of both the Indies, you could not and dare not espouse any other calling so as to be put aside from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, then depend upon it. You see, the internal call is so vital that if it does not exist in a man, he should not take the post. Reminds me of 
a man I met locally whom I was asking how he got into the ministry and having him tell me his story and in the midst of the conversation I discovered that he was actually in the medical field and his reason for becoming a pastor was he was just very simply tired of the medical field and he professed to be a believer and so he thought it would be a good career change that says nothing of the internal call of God in his life it's vital because this internal call comes from God and while by the way the call must be tested as we'll see later on without this internal call one can be sure that he's not called to the pastorate and that church can be assured that that man will bring harm on the church even if unintentionally well, the second thing that we should notice about the first qualification here is that it is specific and limited. Paul says, if any man aspires, the office is limited to men. This has nothing to do with capability or equality. This is God's design for God's church. Later on, by the way, we'll see another qualification that we read. The elder must be a one-woman man is literally what the text reads. Or your English translations probably say the husband of one wife. Well, it's pretty difficult for a woman to be the husband of one woman. So the office of pastor is limited to men only by God's good design. And by the way, that's not just any man. That's not that any man can be a pastor, but the man who has the character God desires. The calling is a weighty one. Listen to Hebrews 13, 7, which we, sorry, rather, we read that earlier, which tells us that the elders give an account to God. James 3, 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Do you realize that? I will incur a stricter judgment upon myself than you will just because of my role. The pastor has a weighty assignment. And so the aspiring and the desiring for the office of overseer must be something that God does in a man. And that man must know that those who hold the office of pastor, teacher, or elder will incur a stricter judgment. And so a man who takes the pulpit very lightly is probably not a man fit to be in the pulpit to start with. Now, it's not so much a qualification, but something else worth knowing, noting in the passage here is the type of work to which a pastor is called. In the text in 1 Timothy, it calls it a fine work. Well, the word fine there means noble, honorable, or excellent. Literally, the word means noble, honorable, or excellent. It's the most worthy and glorious calling a man can have. Not because the man is anything more special than others, but simply because the task is unlike any other task on earth. Giving an account for the souls of God's people. One 18th century Puritan said this of the office of pastor. He said, the office of the Christian ministry, rightly understood, is the most honorable and important. 
that any man in the whole world could ever sustain, and it will be one of the wonders and employment of eternity. To consider the reasons why the wisdom and goodness of God assigns this office to imperfect and guilty men. It is an office and character that are deeply interested in the highest concerns of God's perfections and glory. It is an employment that obliges a man to the closest attention to find out the true mind of God in the Holy Scriptures. It is a work in which we are called to instruct the minds of men in the noblest knowledge and to teach them to adore and to love God. The great design and intention of the office of the Christian preacher are to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men, to display in the most lively colors and to proclaim in the clearest language the wonderful perfections, offices, and grace of the Son of God, and to attract the souls of men into a state of everlasting friendship with him. It's a high calling. It's a fine work, but it's a hard work. It's a noble work, but it's not always a glamorous work. Now, I have to say, I'm very blessed with you guys. You're all very easy. I mean that. This is the first characteristic of being called. And although it might seem trivial, I hope you're starting to kind of get a picture of why. It's really not. For the believer, they need to know that their pastor had a genuine call to the ministry. The work is demanding, it's a heavy work, and it's a lifelong work. Just think of the imagery of the shepherd. Shepherding requires a constant thought of the sheep and what they need for their health and their well-being. The pastor is constantly considering, uh, maybe I should say true pastor, the man who is genuinely called to the office of pastor-teacher is constantly in watchful prayer over those in care, in his care. He's always considering what their spiritual needs may be, always praying, always thinking of how to lift Christ before them and how to Get them to behold the beauties of Christ and desire to be obedient to his word. He wakes up in the morning thinking about his flock and he goes to bed at night thinking about his flock, not his next fishing trip. The pastor who thinks of the church little is nothing more than a hireling who will have the weight of God's judgment on him for the lack of care he gives God's children. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.2 writes, he says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Now, I want to draw attention to the laboring here. The word used for labor means to work to the point of exhaustion. That's literally what the word means. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently work to the point of exhaustion among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give instruction. That's got to be the heart of the pastor. Turn over to 2 Timothy, if you will, chapter 4. Hopefully you still have your finger in 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And um, let's see. 
Maybe just put your eyes down on verse 1, and I'll just read a couple passages here. Again, Paul to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Now let me stop here for a moment. So here the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and whatever he is about to say to Timothy must be extremely important. How do we know that? Well, listen again to his language. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And then for good measure, he adds, who is the judge who is to judge the living and the dead? If Timothy wasn't paying attention, he certainly is now. And then Paul goes on to say, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That's the admonition for the preacher. Paul tells Timothy there's no vacation in this job There's no escape in this job. The pastorate is a call to a lifelong, nonstop work. You work in season, and you work out of season. And whatever that means, it means that there's no off-season. Beyond that, look at the many weighty things that a pastor is commanded to do. I think this is extremely helpful for the body of Christ. I can't tell you how many times I've heard out on the social media things like, well, my pastor doesn't have a right to tell me that. My pastor can't tell me that I shouldn't do X, Y, Z. Well, it seems to me here the pastor's role is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. So, yeah, it actually is the pastor's role to do those things righteously with patience these are not just casual coffee encounters that the pastor is meant to have with people although that's fine the pastor is looking after the souls of people and as one of uh, the master seminary journal puts it it says the cost of ministerial failure is the eternal destiny of the very people the lord has entrusted to our care The cost of ministerial failure is the eternal destiny of the very people the Lord has entrusted to our care. This is the view the pastor has to have. I mean, a a barista can mess up a good cup of coffee, right? We've all had that. If they aren't careful. But a pastor, if he isn't careful, he can wreck a life. To add a little more weight to... The work, the pastor is looking after souls who were not just purchased, but they were purchased with the highest price imaginable, the blood of Christ. Christ bled and he died for his church. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 53.5 says it, 
In a little more detail, it says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was, uh, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. This is what the pastor signs up for, to look after people whom were bought with this price. It's a joyful job, but it's a very serious job. The pastor's job is a hard job, and the price is a high price. The church is Christ's beloved bride. Each and every believer purchased with his sacrifice. And then Christ entrusts the care of those souls that he purchased while on earth to the man in the office of pastor-teacher. It's amazing to me how so many men take the role of pastor so casually. I think in America we have really more little boys in pulpits than we do God-fearing men. Men playing preacher rather than praying for God's people. God intended that the men in the pastorate be diligently laboring to feed and care for his people. Beyond all of that, there are other warnings in Scripture for those who teach God's people. In fact, why don't you go ahead and turn with me quickly to the book of Mark, the second book in your New Testament. The book of Mark, and go to chapter 9. And again, you need to know this because as you interact with other believers and if you go visit churches, if you're not from here, if you have a different church and you're listening to this on tape or something, you need to know what to expect of the man of God. You need to know how he's meant to view his role according to Scripture. Mark 9.42 reads this way. It says, And whoever causes one of these little ones to believe who believed to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Let me just read that again. And whoever, by the way, this is Jesus speaking, right? And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. This is Jesus speaking. I mean, what a warning. I mean, the man who doesn't tremble inside when he gets in the pulpit is a man who knows nothing about God. Nothing. It's a weighty calling. It's a high calling. It's a joyful calling, but it's a calling that has to come from God. There has to be an aspiring and a desiring for the work. Why? That has to be there because who else could bear the weight of this kind of job? I mean, who else in their right mind would sign up for a job that says, if you lead one of mine astray, it would be better if you were drowned in the ocean? Who would sign up for that? has to be a man who 
feels the weight of the call. There's a saying in the ministry, he who calls also supplies. In other words, we know God calls imperfect men. There's no perfect pastor. That's not what the text is asking for. These are general characteristics. If you look at the man, is this generally true of him? Because there are no perfect people. But in other words, God grants what is necessary to those men who he gives this desire to. And so we rightly deduce that if God hasn't given the desire, that that man is going to be lacking. The pastorate is meant to be for men who must rely and know that they must rely wholly and solely on God to do the task through them. If there were ever a man who felt he could do the job of pastor on his own with only the aid of his own natural ability, it would be better off for him that he did anything else in this world than step into a pulpit, lest he incurs the judgment of God on himself. Now, that's not to say that the man shouldn't have any training. He absolutely should have training. We should do whatever we can to improve ourselves for the sake of God's people. But with all the warnings that we've read, he must absolutely be trained, fully trusting in God to work through that. But in the end, he's a king's man. He serves the king. It's the king's people he shepherds. And he must be totally sold out to the word of God to rule his life so that the people who scripture commands to submit to his leadership will see what it looks like to pursue holiness and righteousness and godliness. This is really just the very first character test. A man has to have enough integrity to say whether or not he feels this internal draw or whether he merely sees the pastorate as a good thing to do. And this will be confirmed, by the way, with all the other qualifications and with other elders in the church. No man just very simply gets to say, I feel called to the pastorate and then go plant a church. That's not how it should work. It's not how we did it here. It's not how any church should do it. You have other men who recognize the call and the gifting. You get trained best you can, whatever that looks like, and you have ascending church. People who've recognized that not just what you say is true, but they see it demonstrated outwardly. And so we have all the other qualifications that help with that. It isn't just a man who has a tingly feeling once and decides that he's called to the ministry. It has to be a desire, burning, unquenchable desire, a good kind of desire, and then it has to be tested. And so this is how the Apostle Paul starts out. This is just the start of the qualifications of an elder, just the very beginning. Now next week, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. We'll go a little bit quicker through some of the other ones and we'll really start looking at some of the more practical and observable qualifications. Let's pray.